Nicole Hannah-Jones, you have a Pulitzer Prize and a MacArthur Genius Grant. Uh, many folks know you from, obviously, the 1619 Project that the New York Times Magazine released. The book, the 1619 Project, is about to come out. But one of the things that caught me about your biography is your love of the Little House on the Prairie books. You also read a lot of Louis L'Amour. I mean, the, the mythology of the American West. Those are some of the writers that helped shape you as a reader when you were growing up. And I just, I love that part of the story. L'Amour, I'm less familiar with. You were swiping them from your dad. I think that's a very sweet yes. story. <laughs> but you opened the 1619 Project with a really terrific story about your dad and his military service. Would you share that here? Yes. My opening essay for the 1619 Project is an essay on democracy. And I open that essay with the image of my dad's flag in the front yard. We lived on a corner lot in a navy blue house in a redlined neighborhood on the black side of town. And first thing you would see when you approach our house was this flag. And it seemed like the pole was, you know, 100 feet tall when I was a kid. It wasn't quite that tall, but the very prominent flag. And I just talk about being really embarrassed that my dad would fly this American flag as a teenager, because I'd seen, you know, my dad go from one kind of service job to the next. I was thinking a lot about race and racism and just didn't understand how a man who had grown up in apartheid Mississippi, who had never been able to really live the American dream, would want to fly this symbol of American imperialism. And so I open with that sense of conflict, which, which is actually a very common experience for Black Americans in that this is the only country we have because the Middle Passage erased any connection to any other ancestral land. And yet we have had to fight every second we've been here to be treated as citizens of the only country that we have. My dad joined the military at the age of 17. Black people serve in the military at the highest rate of all racial groups. And part of that is really because military service has always been a way that Black people have tried to prove that they're worthy of citizenship in the country of their birth. And that was how my father was. And my father was deeply patriotic. He was very proud of his military service. And it took me until I was reading and researching for this essay to understand my father's patriotism. I spent my entire life, adult life, not understanding why he would fly that flag, but now I do. I love the subtitle of this book, A New Origin Story. This is the book I wanted when I was in school. I'm delighted to have it now. <laughs> Thanks. But I do want to, right? I do want to talk about this for a second because I'm going to riff off of something that Wesley Morris says in his essay about music, which is in the book, and it is fabulous. But it also goes back to something I said when I was welcoming you to the show, which is we love the stories we tell ourselves about our American mythology and Louis L'Amour and Little House on the Prairie and the American West and homesteading. They are a big part of that narrative that we've been fed, that we have continued to feed. And part of that is how we got where we are. And I'm going to quote you from the book for a second. We all suffer for the poor history we've been taught. Our myths do not serve us well. On the contrary, facing the truth liberates us to build the society we wish to be. Fights over history are fights about power. Yes. That, to me, sums up this beautiful book. It's essays interspersed with poetry and fiction excerpts. Can we talk about how you decided to structure this book? So in many ways, the book kind of follows the structure of the magazine, which was we have a series of essays 
each is tackling some modern phenomenon or institution and showing through historiography how these institutions or phenomena were shaped by the legacy of slavery and anti-Blackness. We knew that that's what the project was going to be. And then we started having discussions about the fact that so much of the history of Black people in this country is not told from the perspective of Black people, because Black people were the only people in the history of this country for whom it was illegal to read and write. And you had a population at the end of the Civil War where 90% of the Black population was enslaved, and about 94% of them were illiterate. And so you don't have the kind of amount of letters and books and diary entries that you have from other groups to kind of recreate these moments. And so we started having a conversation and thought, well, we don't necessarily have a written record of Black people's experience of so many of these moments in history, but what if we allowed our greatest testimony to the the legacy of slavery, which are the descendants of slavery, to reimagine these moments and tell these moments in a Black voice. And it was thrilling because we reached out to not just the greatest Black writers, but these are the greatest amongst the greatest American writers and asked them to pick a moment in history. We didn't want to really contain people. We gave a long list of historical moments and said, pick a moment and write about it. And it not only fills in kind of a a historic gaps, but also I think gives you some breathing room between the essays, which are dense and hard and long, some of them, especially mine. <laughs> um, and so it gives you a bit of breathing room. And then the the photos. So every chapter in the book opens with an archival photo of just a regular Black person, not anyone famous in all but two of the essays. They're not even anyone who's featured in the essay. And they go from the beginning of photography all the way to the present time. And That was really Caitlin Roper, one of the editors on the book's idea. And it's a way to force you to pause before each essay and to reflect on the fact that everything you're about to read affected real human beings who loved, who hurt, who felt pain, which we sometimes can forget when we're talking about kind of the horrors of slavery and Jim Crow. And Caitlin was inspired by the National Museum of African American History and Culture. We took a field trip there, a small group of us at the beginning of the project so that people who had never been to the museum could really get a sense of the mission. And she was really struck by the portraiture. And for her, It was the first time she had ever seen sometimes pictures of enslaved people or old photos of Black people just living their life. And we think that that's just such a a powerful kind of resetting before each essay. Uh, So that's kind of how the different parts of the project came together. It's an anthology, but I don't think it reads like an anthology. We were very careful about the order of every essay, that each essay is building and making an argument, but it's also just trying to really reflect the breadth of a 400-year story. And this book is a who's who of historians, poets, novelists, cultural critics, filmmakers, activists, playwrights, novelists, and journalists, many of whom have Pulitzer Prizes. You are not the only MacArthur Genius Grant winner (laughs) in this book. Plenty of other authors and just some of the writers who are involved. Jesmyn Ward, Kese Lehman, Jesse, Clint Smith, Reginald Dwayne Betts, Tracy K. Smith, Nafisa Thompson-Spires, Natasha Trethaway, Jason Reynolds, Gregory Pardlow, Claudia Rankine, Lynn Nottage, Terrence Hayes, and Danez Smith. And I am literally scratching the surface. We're going to go a little deeper into some of the essays, but those are just a few of the names of the people who've contributed to this project. And it is a wonder to read. And you can read it straight through. I've read it twice now and I've read it straight through once. And then I went back and sort of dipped around simply listening for voice. 
Mm-hmm. There is a timeline piece, but the essays are much broader in scope. And, and yeah. many of them did start in the magazine. But what's that like for you as an editor when you're trying to put together these larger stories? The essays aren't necessarily chronological, though somewhat, but all of them, of course, are spanning history. And we try to really put them together in a way that makes an argument. This entire project is making an argument. So, you know, we start with democracy for a reason and we end on progress by Ibram X. Kendi and then on justice, which is basically saying, okay, you've read to the end of this book. Now, what are you going to do with what you have learned? What are we obligated to do with what, what what we have learned. So that's the experience we were trying to get. You know, even if if you look at the table of contents, the decision to use one word titles for each chapter, we wanted to just in stark terms show you the breadth of all of the things that the legacy of slavery has touched in a very stark way. And if you just read, write those titles and you just get a sense of of our argument, which is that very, very little about our society has not been shaped in some way by the legacy of slavery. It is a foundational institution. So that was what we were really trying to do. But the essay on traffic is closer to the end because we're talking about, you know, a more modern phenomena. Sugar is closer to the beginnings. You know, the establishment of race by Dorothy Roberts is a very early essay. So it, it's not really chronological, but it is building an argument and showing you how over time, even as we get further and further away from the legacy of slavery, we are still doing things that are being shaped by that legacy. When I was a high school student, one of the resources we were given was the Cycles of American History by Arthur Schlesinger. And I think that was taught quite a lot across the country for a while. Reading the 1619 Project makes me feel like there aren't, in fact, cycles that we are working on a giant linear plane. But for you working on this project as a journalist and and also as the editor, did you feel like you were seeing the cycles or did you feel like it was much more, here we are, let's tell this piece of the story and have we been able to change? What's that process like emotionally? It's absolutely cyclical. I mean, that's why I've been fascinated and obsessed with history is you just see how history repeats, right? It echoes. And I've always Uh, often said, you know, Dr. King used to borrow that phrase that the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And and I actually argue that it's not an arc, it's a circle. (laughs) And it's not actually bending towards anything. It just keeps kind of repeating itself. And you certainly get that sense when you read the book that of course, nothing is ever exactly the same, but white supremacy is very adaptable. That when you have a country whose one of its oldest institutions is racialized slavery, and that created an entire network of laws and policies and customs and so-called science and art to really justify and enforce that Black people were inferior, that you can't escape that. It is, as I say, and others have said, it's in the DNA of our country. I mean, I never do uplifting work. That's not the hallmark of my journalism, but it was brutal. This is the most challenging and emotionally draining project I've ever worked on. It is something to just spend, at this point, years reading about the constant horrors, unfairness, brutality that your people have been subjected to. But at the same time, I've just come away with such a profound gratitude 
for our ancestors and understanding more so than ever before how much agency we were exercising despite everything that was out of our control and really how central we are to the American story. So it's that one, a deeply painful history, but also deeply empowering to me. And I have felt all of those emotions working on this project, but mostly just just gratitude. I think I'm going to skip ahead a tiny bit and just ask, are we making progress? It feels like we are really stuck and that whatever gains we may have made in the past are being lost at a rapid rate. The story of America is a story where we want to think that we win battles and banish these evils to the past and and then we move on. But really the story is that we never win, that we're always going to be fighting against what I would argue is our innate instinct in a country that 150 years before we even became a nation, that just 12 years after the English landed Jamestown, is purchasing Africans to be enslaved. And so I think we as Americans in general like to be optimistic, forward thinking, not backwards looking people. And we certainly want to believe that racism is a blight, but not defining of who we are. But I don't think history confirms (laughs) that belief. And so there's a reason that the second to the last essay in the book is called Progress. And that is an essay where, or Ibram brilliantly really exposes that Americans use progress as an excuse not to act against injustice now. That we can look backwards and say, I guess that I should be grateful that I wasn't raised in Jim Crow or apartheid. And we can look forward and say, well, things are going to be better in the future. And then we don't have to actually do anything about uh, the inequality that we see today. And I would, of course, argue that Black people should not be grateful that there are no longer laws, (laughs) right, that legally discriminate against us because of our race, that the expectation of gratitude and this really balm of progress is deeply hurtful to building a more equal society. So I think we get too caught up on the notion of progress and not enough on what do we need to be doing to have an equal country where all citizens have an equal shot at life. And progress in some ways is irrelevant. Systems play a big part. Political systems, systems of punishment, financial systems, medical systems. Yes. We've seen all of this, that, that the systems are built by people, they represent people, but they are not, in fact, people themselves. And yet they become, this has become a very personal conversation for a lot of folks. Instead of being able to step back and say, oh, wait, that's a system. It's a thing that's broken. Do Do we have a chance to change that conversation and bring it back to the thing itself? Yeah, I think that we are comforted by the narrative that racism and racial inequality can be defined by some bad individuals. And that as long as we can say, we don't agree with you using the N-word, or you shouldn't explicitly say racist things, that we have done the work that has to be done. And, And what the 1619 Project is trying to show is that racial inequality is not about individuals. It is about an entire structure that has been set up over time that is self-replicating whether you are individually racist or not. And really the individual's racism is somewhat irrelevant. An example would be a Red Lines neighborhood. 
you don't have to have individual white people right now who are refusing to sell someone homes or refusing to give anyone loans for the effects of redlining to be replicated. And they are because if we created these things and we didn't do anything to undo these things, then they continue. And I think it is much more important to talk about the larger structures and to show that they were created by people. Because if you understand that they were created by people, then you also understand that those structures can be undone. That if policy creates things, then policy can undo things. And that is important because that's empowering. But when we basically break down inequality to just the acts of some racist individuals, then I think that alleviates all of us societally from having to act. And I've been thinking a lot about what has happened in the last year and a half since the so-called racial reckoning last year and how this anti-critical race theory laws and this kind of hysteria and propaganda around the 1619 Project and what they're calling critical race theory was in response to Americans were making the connection that inequality is structural. And you saw that in the polling, you saw that in the language, I mean, one poll showed 45% of Republicans saw racism as a structural issue, which is an astounding figure. And so then we have to see this backlash, which says, no, 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 no. They want you to think that you're bad as a white person. And they want your children to think that you're bad. And they're blaming everything on, on that because then that distracts from the policy question. And we can start again, like defining racism on individual terms. So what the entire project is trying to do is say that this is embedded in who we are and you can banish slavery, but you can't banish his legacy unless you address the structures that were created uh, to undergird the institution. Which brings me to a slightly touchy subject for some folks. There is anti-Blackness in communities of color. I'm Asian American, and there are segments of my community that anti-Blackness is acceptable. Yes. It's horrifying, but it's there. I did not know, though, that there was a moment when the U.S. government was encouraging Indigenous people to own slaves. Can we just look at communities of color and the conversations we're not having about anti-Blackness? The way that we tend to think about race as a Black-white binary in this country, which for obvious reasons, Blackness was defined by being enslaved, which puts you automatically at the bottom. Whiteness is automatically at the top. And Black people have been, until very recently, the largest racial minority group in the country. So that makes sense. But what it does then is it treats these made-up races, because race is a construct. If you're not white, we are all lumped together except that's not how we actually function. And when you come to the United States as a person of color, as a non-Black person of color, or even a Black person of color, one of the first things you learn is who is on the bottom. And you don't want to be on the bottom, right? So we tend to talk about race in, in very unsophisticated ways. And I think that is the benefit to whiteness that we don't talk about these in nuanced ways that There's nothing about coming from the continent of Asia that would give you a natural alliance to Black people, except that you come here and you're not white, right? And white people are going to lump you in, but that doesn't give you a natural alliance. And in fact, you become indoctrinated into systems of anti-Blackness just like anyone else. The essay by Taya Miles, the Harvard historian, about the five quote unquote civilized tribes and part of their civilization process was owning Black people, which speaks a lot to Americans. And they do that because they don't want to become slaves themselves. It is an act in some ways, an act of self-preservation. So I think that these are conversations you can never have on Twitter. You're not allowed nuance on Twitter, but we have to understand there's nothing that makes us natural allies except white supremacy. And even that doesn't naturally make 
people from disparate backgrounds, disparate countries, allies. But one thing that we know is that everyone learns anti-Blackness in this country, including Black people. It is impossible to be part of America and not learn anti-Blackness and that it benefits the rise of the model minority myth. The development of that myth comes about during the civil rights movement when Black people are making demands, pushing for equality in the law, and white Americans see Asian Americans as useful in saying, well, look, these people are Black and they seem to be doing just fine. So what's the problem here? So we have to understand that all of these racial categories that have been foisted upon us, I mean, as you know, Asia is a continent. In Asia, someone from Japan does not think of themselves as being the same people as someone from India. But once you come to America, you all get lumped into this massive racial category and this massive kind of ethnic category. And America does that. And then America forces us to choose. And who's going to choose the people on the bottom? And I use Asian American because I'm actually multiple kinds of Asian. (laughs) It's like, well, it's not just one thing. But that also does bring me to reparations because Japanese Americans did receive reparations from the U.S. government for being incarcerated in internment camps during World War II. Yes. Those payments were made under a Republican administration after very active lobbying by Norm Mineta and Alan Cranston. The first calls for reparations to formerly enslaved people in the U.S. come from a woman called Callie House, who starts in the late 1800s. The backlash is pretty swift, but I would really like more people to know her name. And I feel like until this project, a lot of folks really didn't know who she was. Agreed. None of us are ever really forced to contemplate what did freedom mean for 4 million people who for 250 years were not allowed to accumulate any income, any property, any land, a house, a bed, nothing to be, quote unquote, liberated overnight and then cast into freedom with nothing. As historian Carrie Lee Merritt says, Black Americans were the only people probably in the history of the world to have zero wealth as a people because of 250 years of generational slavery, which means generation after generation of people who were born and died into an institution where they worked every day of their lives for zero pay. And so these formerly enslaved people were free and absolutely destitute. They had no way to feed themselves unless they went back and worked on their former plantations. They had no land, they had no houses, their stories of them trying to seek shelter and bombed out old churches and buildings from the war of scavenging in fields. They were absolutely destitute. And this woman named Callie House, who was formerly enslaved and was working as a washerwoman, sees these formerly enslaved people who are elderly, who sometimes not only can't feed themselves, but their bodies had been crippled by the hard labor of slavery. They couldn't even afford to bury their dead ones. They were so destitute. And, And she argues that we are deserved reparation. And she makes this claim The federal government had confiscated all of this Southern cotton that had been picked by enslaved people. They knew exactly how much it was all marked and they knew exactly what it was worth. And she said that the federal government should pay that money from that cotton to the formerly enslaved as a slave pension. She sues the federal government. The full weight of the federal government is brought down on this lowly, formerly enslaved Black washerwoman. And she goes to jail for attempting to defraud the formerly enslaved by collecting money from them to advocate for reparations. The reason that story is important is one, of course, the first thing you hear when you talk about reparations is no one who is alive is still enslaved. Well, people who had been enslaved tried to get reparations from a white government that had just enslaved them (laughs) until a war. 
and were denied. And every generation of Black Americans has tried to get reparations and have, has had to plead to a majority white country that practiced slavery, that practiced Jim Crow to pay restitution. And I think that lineage is important when you understand the argument, but also that we have living victims of Tulsa right now. Even after a commission said that the, the victims of the Tulsa massacre should get reparations, they weren't given them. And now the last surviving victims are 100 years old and will wait until they die and then say there's no victims to to pay. So that context is missing in all of these reparations conversations. And I thought it was critical. And context seems to be the thing that people are really struggling with. You've created a really nuanced anthology. Yes, it absolutely builds the argument. But at the same time, let's take Wesley Morris's essay on music for a second. I mean, it's clear that Black culture is American culture. When we look at music, when we look at the arts, when we look at film and television. But let's look at music for a second, which is what Wesley's writing about. And he starts with Motown. And it never occurred to me that the first sort of origin story of a rock and roll band would come out of minstrelry. I mean, I know about Al Jolson and Blackface, but it never occurred to me that that's where bands came from. Here we are trying to say, oh, no, no, there's just Black culture. And then there's the rest of it. I'm like, well, no. That's right. Wesley is one of the most brilliant writers in America, period. He writes about culture, but in such a serious, but funny and beautiful way that is so deeply researched and historical, which is why I knew that I wanted an essay for this project that was going to argue that all American music is Black music at its roots. To really show, we shouldn't even call it Black music. Like it's not, it is American music. And I knew he would be the one. I knew he had been working on this book on on minstrelsy. I also just knew if I wanted someone who would be able to make these kind of historical and sweeping arguments in a beautiful way, it would be him. And this is true of so much. So you talk about TV and film. The very first feature film is Birth of a Nation. The very first narrative, like original American literature are the slave narrative. The original American music is gospel and jazz and blues and hip hop. So in all of these ways, and I would argue, and and some anthropologists and sociologists would argue that it was the unique experience of that purging of the Middle Passage and all of these different cultures who were coming from across West and Central Africa, having to merge together and not be able to hold on to convention because you are now thrown into this situation with all of these different people with different religious beliefs and different musical traditions and different languages. And you are now one people that that led to the type of innovation on American soil that is uniquely American. And yet we don't get the credit for that. We are the subgenre when we really, we are the genre. <laughs> I love Du Bois. I read a lot of Du Bois. And, and he says, he asked the questions, what would America be without her Negro people? And the argument of that essay, I mean, so much of the book focuses on the hardship, the horror, the fight for right that is defining of America and defining of the Black experience. And I needed something in this book that was also showing the joyous contributions that Black people have made. And that's what this essay does, is that out of these barbaric experiences, Black people created so much about what is beautiful about American culture. And that gets exported to the rest of the world as American culture. 
And Wesley has a great line, decades of jams written, produced, and performed by Black artists sustain parties in places that sustain no actual Black people. This unceasing eruption of ingenuity, invention, intuition, and improvisation constitutes the very core of American culture. And that's it right there. Those are all things that every American is supposed to strive for. Whether or not they have access to the education or the resources, those are all things that we think belong to this American myth. Yeah. He's also attacking this sort of idea of a poisonous nostalgia Mm -hmm. when he's writing about music and he's saying, we're going forward, we're going forward, we're constantly pushing the limits. I mean, jazz, funk, hip hop, all of these innovations that, as you say, come out of a terrible, terrible place. I mean, Motown was an amazing revelatory sound when it first arrived. And the idea that, you know, there was a Detroit sound and a Philly sound, does it get more American than that? I'm going to show my age for two seconds and be like, yeah, everyone looked great on stage with Motown, but then doesn't that open the door to the whole respectability politics piece where, you know, Barry Gordy was making sure that everyone looked a certain way so you couldn't be judged and the perfect pillbox hats and the perfect suits and the perfect ties. And that still carries on a little bit with all of us, but we do also see it sometimes in the Black community, especially with older entertainers who have opinions about people's pants. Yeah, I mean, that tension has always existed because when you as a people are having to constantly prove your worth as humans, as citizens, your culture can sometimes become very focused on controlling everything that is within your control to combat the stereotypes of your lack of humanity. And so, yes, dress, how you articulate your speech the type of music that you make, right? Uh, Blues was not considered respectable music because blues was talking about sex, right? And so we have to pretend that we don't want to fulfill the stereotype of Black people as hypersexual. We don't want to fulfill the stereotype of Black people as inarticulate. This is the burden of Black people. I think this is the burden of marginalized people in general is having to always be aware of these stereotypes and trying to mitigate them, even though... I added, we say in my community all the time is, you know, Martin Luther King was wearing a suit when they assassinated him. Like it's, it's not going to save you, but I understand where that instinct is coming from. And frankly, uh, I think I very actively uh, in how I present my own self, try to push against that idea that to be intelligent or successful or valued as an intellectual, you, you have to present in ways that are pleasing to white Americans. I want to step back from the book for just a second, because you've talked in the past about how beat reporters like Ida Wells and Ethel Payne and uh, Simeon Booker and Claude Sitton are really hugely important to you as a journalist and also Du Bois. But who do you turn to for literary inspiration? Who are some of the writers you go back to? Oh, I mean, you know, it's it's just going to be the classic folks. I love reading Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass knew how to make an argument. Much as I've read by him, I can never stop being astounded that he taught himself basically to read and write and became one of the, if not the most brilliant writers in the history of America. Toni Morrison, Sonia Sanchez. I love reading, you know, he's a good friend of mine, but everything that ta writes. I didn't grow up in a household of high literature. My mom was reading Daniel Steele. My dad was reading Louis L'Amour. I came from a household of avid readers, but I didn't read Baldwin until I was in my 30s. You know, I took a course on the Harlem Renaissance in college, and that was the first time I read any Harlem Renaissance writers except for Langston Hughes. So I write like a newspaper reporter. I don't write in that kind of literary 
I mean, I write as a narrative newspaper reporter, but I don't have that high literary background. And so I love to read writers who do. It's not something I think I can replicate, but God, I love a beautiful sentence. This is a time where I think so much great Black writing is occurring. I think it will have to last because there's so many different places to be published now. It's much more democratic, but but God, what an amazing time to be a Black writer. And so many of those voices are represented in this book. I mean, some of my favorite writers, Clint Smith is doing amazing work right now. Jasmine Ward. Jasmine Ward. Gregory Pardlow. This is a who's who. This is really a who's who. Yeah, it's literally a dream. And Barry Jenkins, who, of course, is a a filmmaker, wrote a short piece in there about Gabrielle Prosser that the first time I read it made me cry. Terry McMillan, who I read her novels as a teenager. And when we were thinking of writers, I was like, let's branch out a little bit. Let's show really the spectrum of Black writers. And the time capsule of this moment. And and I know I've said this before, but I see this book in so many ways. It's just such a testament. Like what greater testament to what our ancestors survived than to be able to showcase. And the thing is, if we had more space, there's so many other writers, right, that we could have even put in there. There's just so much talent. And the beauty of those voices really creates a chorus. It, It is a chorus of the Black experience. I'm so proud of that. Not the only book in the 1619 Books Project. No. There is a gorgeous picture book called Born on the Water. It's actually a finalist for our book of the year, which was just (laughs) announced the day before we're taping this. So now you and I can talk about it because our original taped it. I wasn't going to be able to talk to you about this. It is gorgeous, this book, though. The prose is beautiful. The illustrations are spectacular. They are. And it's also a really powerful story. So do we get to see more picture books? Do we get to see more anthologies? <laughs> what what happens next for the 1619 Project? It has taken over my life in a good way. So we're going to do a, a middle grade 1619 book. We're going to do a graphic novel. My daughter, she's 11. She obsessively reads graphic novels. I mean, I'm really excited to see what we can do in that form. And then we're filming the 1619 documentary, which will come out next year. So it's just been amazing to see how hungry people have been for this history and this understanding. When I first pitched the project, really all the way until the day of publication, I just was wrapped by fear that no one was going to care, that we haven't wanted to deal with slavery or its legacy, that people said, we know what we need to know about this. Why do we have to keep bringing it up? And I just wasn't sure how people would respond. And I think it's clear that people are hungry for a more truthful rendering of our past. And also, as I say in my opening essay, the preface for the book, the history we've been taught does not explain the country that we live in. And we are left constantly perplexed by how do certain things happen? How does Donald Trump get elected? How do we have an insurrection on our capital? Why do we have so much income inequality? Why can't they pass this bill just to give Americans uh, the ability to not lose their paycheck if they get sick? And that kind of vaunted history of the Declaration and the Founders doesn't explain that, but 1619 does. And I think people have been really interested in understanding a need to be able to more clearly see the country that we live in. I would really appreciate it as a fellow American if folks would just take the time to look at the book 
(laughs) and sit down with it and not just rely on other people's interpretations. I think that's the one thing that seems to be getting lost in all of these conversations. And I'm not going to pretend we haven't all seen them. Everything's on 11. Everything, regardless of where you get your news or your social media, whatever, everything's on 11. And I think sitting down with primary source materials, which is what this book is, is a really good place to start. And again, you can read it straight through from the first essay to the last essay, or you can dip around. Yes. As it suits you. This is where as a bookseller, I'm going to make my plea for just sit down, take your time and decide for yourself. Thank you. I I mean, when I was a student, though, this is exactly the kind of book I was looking at because I'm of an age and of a generation where I had to put together a lot of this material on my own. And I was a library kid. And it sounds like that was not dissimilar for you. you had to chase a lot of information because there was this book and then there's one other book. And so even as a teenager, when you're looking, you've just got to go dig. And if you're lucky, one of the adults will say, oh, by the way, here you go, try this too. Yes. And you know, I I would love, I mean, this is kind of beside the point, but Mm -hmm. we all want to see ourselves in the story of our country. And we call this a new origin story, not an origin story for a reason. There are many origin stories. Every person wants to feel a part of the narrative of, of our country. I would love to see similar projects for other groups in this country because this is our shared history. I second your plea that people actually read the book for themselves and look at the pages and pages and pages of endnotes to see what the scholarship is based on. But people form an opinion of this project without having actually engaged with the project. And I think that what is so important for all of us is if you are an American, this is your history. And people of color like us are always taught to see ourselves in the stories of people who don't share our race. We are supposed to see ourselves and take pride in what white Americans did. But white Americans are not expected to take pride in what our people did. And my argument is, this is not a Black story. This is the American story. And white Americans should also be proud of the way that Black people fought to democratize this country, as should Asian Americans, as should Indigenous Americans, just like I take pride in the struggles of those other groups as well. And that's what I hope people will get out of this. Is This is an American story. And just because your people might not always be the hero in the story, doesn't mean that this isn't a story that we could all uh, take some pride in. And we're not overlooking Latinos either. Just saying. No, <laughs> no sorry. This no. is where it gets from. <laughs> but again, it comes back to your original point of this is the American story. The story we've been taught over time is a myth. And even, and you address this in the book too, the founding fathers struggled with this as well, because they knew that they were essentially partially writing a fairy tale because they never used the word slavery. They never used the word slave. And they struggle with this. And it's documented in the book. For those of you who are listening, it's all documented in the book. It's all documented. 400 years of history. This information has been here. It's a matter of putting together in a way that we can all access it. Historians have been working with this material for a really long time, and not all of us have access to the library of a major university. That's right. And now we can actually pick up a book and say, oh, hey, wait a minute. I don't need a library pass. I can sit down with this. So as I said earlier, as a bookseller, I'm really excited that the 1619 Project is out in the world. I hope people will take a chance and sit with it and maybe surprise themselves. I learned quite a lot from this book, but I also got a great deal of pleasure out of the book, the way it was structured, the poems that were added and the photographs and the fiction excerpts and what have you, and just seeing the voices that were represented. I really appreciated that as a reader. So everyone just keep an open mind. 
please. <laughs> Is there anything we missed that you want to add? Well, you know, there's just so much in here. I've been studying this history since I was 16 years old. I majored in African-American studies in college. I read obsessively over this history. And I learned things in every single essay. And what's important is not a history. Every essay is talking about modern America and explaining things that you see in the country right now. And I think that's what set this project apart in some ways is we showed why history and the study of history and understanding history matters if we want to understand the country that we live in. So I also hope that people will read the book because I think it's just a powerful reshaping of how we understand our country. I hope it will lead us all to be more skeptical of these settled narratives and how they get decided, who gets to decide what we're going to learn and how. And the final thing I'll say, it is rare to see a work of nonfiction with the type of editing that this book received. Every essay went through our typical magazine editing process. So it is beautifully written. It's a pleasure to read. It doesn't read like an academic book. It, it has beautiful magazine writing and you don't often find anthologies with that level of editing. Shout out to Elena Silverman and, and Jake Silverstein for that. That seems like a pretty great place to wrap it up. Nicole Hannah-Jones, thank you so much. The 1619 Project is out now. Born on the Water is out now. We cannot wait to see the middle reader and the graphic novel versions of these books. Thank you so much for making the time to join us today. Thank you. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. 